Hi, this is Mark Brady. I'm the pastor at Anchor Faith Church in Valdosta, Georgia. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast today. We believe it will bless you and minister to you. I get ready to receive a word from God. Go with me if you would to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. Trust that your summer is off to a great start so far. Hey, if you would... Do this for me. Mark down the date, June 27th. June 27th is a Sunday. And uh, Pastors Earl and Marcy Glisson will actually be here in the house with us. And uh, we'll all be returning from youth camp, so you'll have to excuse us if we're a little rowdy and crazy. That's what youth camp can do to us. But um, they want to come and minister and, and see the church body here, and and that weekend worked out for us. So mark that date down. Do everything you can to be here in town with us. Um, They love connecting with our church body here, love seeing what God is doing here in Valdosta, Georgia, all the way from St. Augustine, Florida. And um, so mark that date down and be here in attendance with us. It's going to be a a great morning, a great service. Pastor Earl Marcy always do a wonderful job ministering, but they just love seeing your faces and connecting with you. So if you don't come any of the next two weeks to hear me, I won't be offended. Just make sure you're here to to hear them. Mark chapter 4, verse 30. Jesus is speaking, and he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? He's asking, what can we compare it to? What can we assign value to? You know, when you're comparing something, you're trying to find two things that are of like manner, right? He's asking, what What brings the same weight? What brings the same value as the kingdom of God? What can we compare the kingdom of God? What has as much value, as much weight, as much interest as the kingdom of God? Or what parable can we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed. What? Wait, you just said the kingdom of God. We're talking about something great. We're talking something magnificent. We're talking about something great and worthy of honor, huge, vast, uh, never ending. Uh, You know, he says things like the end of your kingdom, there'll be no end. It will go on and on and it will increase and increase and advance and advance. And you pick a mustard seed, like a mustard seed that when sown upon the soil is the smallest of all the seeds on the ground. And everybody's looking at Jesus like, have you lost it? You just said the kingdom of God can be compared to a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds on the ground. And when sown, it comes up and grows taller than all the garden plants, produces large branches so that the birds of the sky can nest in its shade. He says, we want to compare a great kingdom to a small seed. The way that we are going to fully understand how the great and vast and never-ending, always-increasing kingdom of God, the best way to explain it, describe it, compare it, to, to illustrate it to you, is to use a tiny Mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds. It would have been bad enough if he would have just said a seed, right? The largest seed. He goes and he picks the smallest seed, and he says, this is how we're going to understand the greatness of the kingdom of God. I've actually hit on this the last several weeks, and I finally just sat down and said, God, what are you wanting to say? What are you wanting to bring out of this right now? In this idea that God has never needed a lot. He's never needed a lot. God has always been one to use whatever he has. Whatever will give him. He has always been a God from the very beginning. That in his greatness and in his vastness and in his magnificence and in his never-ending self and always-increasing kingdom, he's always demanded little. He's always made a demand of the small thing. I could show you multiple examples through the word. 
of where God has never needed a majority. He's never needed everybody to side with him. He's never needed as long as we get 70 out of 100, as long as we get 6 out of 10, if we can just get half. Actually, God has always operated out of the minority. God has always operated with the smallest amount. I could talk to you about uh, Abraham, the man that had no children, was beyond the age of bearing children. And he says, you're going to be a father of many nations. And he didn't bear all the children himself, of course. He started with one child. I could talk to you about Gideon. Oh, Gideon the one hiding out, the one at the bottom of the, 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 the wine cellar. He's not even pressing wine. He's taking care of wheat. I mean, he's not even doing the function of what this environment's designed for. He's clearly hiding out, trying to stay out of sight of the Midianites. He picks this man, and then he raises up an army of over 30,000 people to go up against an army of over 120,000. We're already in the deficit. We're already in the red, and God starts trimming away. Starts cut, cuts it down to 10,000. Cuts that 10,000 down to 300 mere men to go up against 120. God has never needed. God found a, the, the youngest brother out of eight out in the field, a shepherd boy. Not even invited to the anointing party. Oh, we forgot to bring in the youngest one. And they even call him that. Jesse says, oh, there's the youngest one. He's already got the label of the smallest, the youngest, the forgotten, the, you know, the, the one out in obscurity, no one remembered. I can tell you the story of the five loaves and two fish to feed a multitude of people. Jesus says, does anybody got a lunch sack today? Did anybody bring, oh, I don't need the whole catering service. I don't need smoking pig to get all the food there. I don't need this, this massive, uh, uh, you know, display of, of buffet. Has anybody got a lunch pail? We got five loaves and two fish. That'll work. Bring it to me. He's never needed a lot. Even after ministering to all the multitudes of people he ministered to, on the day of Pentecost, he only needed 120. A, a, a mere percentage, a point of a percent compared to all the thousands and thousands of people that saw him. I mean, we don't have record that Lazarus was there. I mean, you raised me from the dead. I'm at whatever you tell me to go to. I'm there. Y'all need, need, need me in the upper room? I'm there. I don't even know what I'm showing up for. You got me out from the dead. You raised me back up, gave me life again. Where do you need me? Yeah, I mean, 120 mere people. I mean, even after his resurrection, he saw 500 of them. You think all 500, this guy was dead, now he's alive. We're there. We get 120. God knows how to work with a little. God knows how to work with just a little bit. God knows how to use the mustard seed to advance a great and vast kingdom. The question today that I have for you is, do we know how to work with a little? And the answer is no, we don't. We're not very good with a little. Now, the great thing about it, I'll just go ahead and get to the punchline. We all have a little. We all have it. We all have it. I, I, I could tell you the parable of uh, uh, Elisha with the woman that the, the, uh, the uh, government came to her and said, you owe a great debt. Your husband's passed on. You can't pay the debt, so we're going to take your sons. They're going to come work for us until the debt's repaid. And so she goes to the prophet Elisha and says, my, my husband worked for you, man of God. I need you to do something about it. And he responds with, what's in your house? Now, don't you think she's gone through the house? Don't you think she's posted everything on Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace and, and cleared out and said, okay, I can sell this off. I can get rid of that. I don't need this. This has got some value to it. Don't you think she's gone through the house, but yet the prophet takes her right back to the house. There's something in your house, something you have access to. God is not asking you for something you don't have. He's not asking you to, to conjure up something or to work towards something or to get something of great value. He says, you got something right where you're at. 
They, they, they came to Jesus with a, a problem at a wedding. We've run out of wine. And of course, you know, at first he's like, not my problem. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And his mom ignores that and goes to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to do. Well, I guess, I guess it's game time. I guess we're doing this. It's not my time hasn't come, but apparently the time has come. We're, we're doing this. We are going to turn water into wine right now. Uh, you got some pots? You got some water? So God is always asking for what you already have. The problem is, here's what I've recognized in life. If, God, if the enemy can't keep it from you, he'll get you to think uh, as little of it as possible. He'll cause you to devalue, to devalue what you have. You hear me? If the enemy can't keep something out of your life, then what you do have, he'll get you to think, that's, not, that's nothing. That doesn't mean anything. God could never use that. God could never do anything with this. And so we end up burying seed rather than planting it. Y'all know the difference between planting and burying. It looks the same. But when you bury something, you forget about it. When you plant something, you're looking forward to its future and what it's going to bring. Now, what we call small is always relative to our experiences. I grew up in a city called Fort Worth, Texas. And actually, I've lived in two of the top 10 largest cities in the United States of America. San Antonio, Texas, that's where I was born, lived there for five years, and then ended up in the the Dallas-Fort Worth area. But I technically wasn't from Dallas, but growing up, you know, uh, and even after I traveled away from Fort Worth, I always felt the need to have to tell people I was from Dallas. Now, if you know anything about the DFW Metroplex, which I don't assume that many of you do or really care about that, so I'll inform you. I'll teach you. (laughs) Dallas-Fort Worth is two separate cities with a bunch of little cities all around it. And so it feels like one big massive city. But I just learned this past week that Fort Worth, Texas is now the 12th largest city. Fort Worth, Texas is now the 12th largest city in the United States of America. And Dallas is the ninth. And San Antonio is the seventh or somewhere in there. Houston, Texas is a big state. I come from everything's bigger in Texas, right? And it's true, except for me, but that's okay. That's why we have this stage as high as it is. Help me out a little bit. But growing up, and even after I I left Fort Worth, I always felt I I couldn't tell people I was from Fort Worth because Fort Worth is small compared to Dallas. Dallas is massive. And Dallas has, you know, all five major sporting events, all right. You got the Cowboys, you got the Mavericks, you got the uh, Rangers, you got uh, the Stars, the Dallas Stars. I mean, you got all, all of it. Dallas, growing up, Fort Worth was like the little suburb of Dallas. Back then, I think, you know, their numbers were around, I don't know, four or 500,000 people. But to me, that was small. But then when I went to Bible school, I went to Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I remember when I arrived at Tulsa, I was like, this is tiny. Tulsa, Oklahoma. What is this tiny little place? We didn't have any sports. We didn't have any of the fun stuff I grew up doing in the great big city of Fort Worth. Couldn't just drive 30 minutes to get to the big city, Dallas. And so all of a sudden, Fort Worth looked big compared to Tulsa. And then after Bible school, I went back to Fort Worth for a little bit. I was glad to get back into God's country, get back in Texas again. And then God calls me to go to St. Augustine, Florida. And now Tulsa looked like the big city. I was like, Tulsa was massive compared to St. Augustine. Now St. Augustine is not far from Jacksonville. Jacksonville is a large city. But I still even felt Jacksonville was small because it didn't have any sports. It didn't have this. And we had Jacksonville Jaguars, but nobody, that's practically, 
the Gators could beat the Jacksonville Jaguars. Even the Seminoles could probably beat the Jacksonville Jaguars. If you know me, that's saying a lot for that Seminole crew out there. Not much. So, now Tulsa looks big compared to St. Augustine. Then God calls us from St. Augustine, Florida to Valdosta, Georgia. I mean, you can't even say the name without a little bit of an accent. Valdosta, Georgia. And I'm thinking, St. Augustine had. Isn't it amazing how what we prayed for in one season, we complain about in the next season? Yeah, and so, you know, Valdosta now compared to, I mean, made St. Augustine look, look like the big city. Then I come, to, I come here and people start telling me that this is the big city. And this is where everybody comes from, Quitman, Nashville, Ray City, you know, wherever else, Hayhira, Lake Park. This is the hub. We got an Olive Garden. We got a mall. We got a, an Old Navy, two Starbucks, Publix, two Walmarts. Isn't it amazing how what we call small is relative to our experiences? It's, it's relative. So I just wonder, i just asking the question today, I just wonder if we're calling things big that God really calls small, and we're calling things small that God really calls big. And out of all the stories that I mentioned and all the ones, all the examples I could give you, I want to go to a guy named Naaman, 2 Kings chapter 5. I want to use this story of Naaman to help display how we've got to be careful what we call small in God's eyes. And it could be very well possible that we could be overlooking the very thing that God wants to use as a catalyst for revival, a catalyst for healing, a catalyst for freedom, deliverance, whatever you're believing for in your life, what we're believing for as a church, what we're believing for in this community. We could be overlooking it. And in 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse 1, it says, Naaman, commander of the army for the king of Aram, was a man important. Everyone say important. Was a man important to his master and highly regarded. Everyone say highly regarded. Because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was a valiant warrior. Everyone say valiant warrior. So we've just used a lot of descriptions. He was important. He was highly regarded, and he was a valiant warrior. This is a man of great stature. This is a man of greatness. This is a man that has experienced some awesome things. This is a man that has achieved some great things in his life. This is a man that has a high status, a high reputation. Uh, He's not called on to do the little things, the small things. He is called on to do the great things. He's called on to go out and win great victories. He's called on to go out and do great things for his country. But it says the man was a valiant warrior, but he had a skin disease. And this is how a lot of us live our lives is we have achievements and accolades and uh, things on the outside of our lives that we've accumulated over time that we attribute to our greatness, but it's that usually those things are hiding the sickness on the inside. We use greatness on the outside to hide sickness on the inside. He used armor, we used Instagram, we used Facebook, we used our kids, we used our job, we used our profile, we used our status, we used our position at work. Um, you know, we, we use all these things. One of the funny things, my wife from time to time, she'll watch a show called The, the Bachelorette or The Bachelor. And I always just find it hilarious uh, when they give the title for the guys or the girls that, you know, they from Texas, uh, bank representative. You're probably a teller clerk. <laughs> Make it sound like she's high up, the CEO in some, you know, high-rise building. You're probably on the front lines, you know. 
We, we change the titles to make it sound pretty. Why? Because we hide behind that stuff. We use greatness to hide sickness. We use greatness to hide pain. We use greatness to hide how we're really feeling or what we're really going through. But we're going to find out in this man's life that God actually wants to use something he'd been overlooking the whole time. God actually wanted to use something that he has set to the side. And it says in verse 2, Aram had gone on raids and brought back from the land of Israel a young girl who served Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his skin disease. So Naaman went and told his master what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And therefore, the king of Aram said, go, and I will send a letter with you to the king of Israel. So he went, and watch this, he went and took with him 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. He went with all of his greatness. He took the things that he counted as worth. He took the things that he counted as valuable. He took the things with him that he counted as would be uh, worthy of receiving. He must have thought he was going to see a televangelist in the 90s. If I bring a good offering, I'll get a miracle. Some of y'all got that. The rest of you, don't even worry about it. Look it up on Wikipedia later. You'll figure it out. He comes with this big offering. He comes with his works. He comes with his show of importance. He comes with his worth and value and his greatness to come and ultimately get a miracle from the Lord, to receive his healing from the Lord. And it's amazing. It's amazing the expense we'll go through to try to impress God. It's amazing what he is willing to risk, what he's willing to pay, the cost he's willing to, to, to endure. Now, maybe to him, those amounts aren't great uh, in, in comparison to his overall wealth. I don't know. It doesn't give us a picture of his overall wealth. But ultimately, what he's bringing clues us into where he gets his value and where he gets his worth and where he gets his identity and what he thinks he has to do to receive something from God or even this, to be something for God. What he's willing to bring. As if this would impress God. And he brought the letters to the king of Israel, and it read, when this letter comes to you, note that I have sent you my servant Naaman for you to cure him of his skin disease. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and asked, am I God killing and giving life that this man expects me to cure a man of his skin disease? Recognize that he is only picking a fight with me. And when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Have him come to me, and he will know there is a prophet in Israel. And so Naaman came, look at this, with his horses and chariots. So he's got his money, he's got his wealth, he's got his sets of clothes, he's got his value, he's got his identity, he's got his entourage, he's got his horses, he's got his, I mean, look, this is how he's achieved his greatness. Whatever you do, to, whatever you think, is how you achieved your greatness is what you have to keep doing to keep your greatness. Hello? So he's just letting you know, this is all the greatness I got. This is worth me getting my miracle. And he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent him a messenger who said, Elisha, Elisha doesn't even come to the house himself. He sends a messenger 
to meet this great man, this valiant warrior, highly esteemed by his masters, has achieved all these. Don't you know who's coming to your door? Don't you know who you're talking to? Do you know who I am? Do you know what I have? Do you know what I'm willing to pay? Do you know what I've brought with me? Do you know what I've accumulated? Do you know what I've done? He sends a messenger to Naaman. And he said this, go wash seven times in the Jordan and your skin will be restored and you will be clean. Elisha sent him a messenger who said, go wash seven times in the Jordan. And this is the verse we want to key on in verse 11. But Naaman got angry and left saying, I was telling myself. Isn't that what we do? We, we talk to ourselves. Well, if I do this, and if I go to church this many times, and if I read my Bible this much, and, and if I cut these people off and so gain a friendship with this, and if I'm only on Facebook, you know, five hours a day, uh, uh, and, and, and some of y'all are like, whoa, five hours a day. Check your screen time. Let's see what that looks like. If I do this, and if I do that, and if I get this, and if I acquire that, and if I go here and, and say this, and we, we, we tell ourselves stuff. We talk to ourselves. I was telling myself, he will surely come out, stand, and call on the name of the Lord, his God. Doesn't even have to be my God. It's his God. And wave his hand over the place and cure the skin disease. So now he's letting you know what his expectation was, right? If I bring this and do this and pay this and wear this and, and, and get this letter from my master and, and do all these things, all these things that we conjure up over time to impress God, all these things that we build up, all, you know, God did not deliver you because of your works. God did not save you because of anything you did. You didn't all of a sudden cross that line to impress God. It's like, oh, now he's worthy to be saved. Now he's worthy for me to work on his behalf. Now he's worthy for me to do something great in his life. You did not all of a sudden catch in, clue in, and, and come into alignment by impressing God with anything. We do have works in our lives. And the works that we produce, holiness, righteousness, the fruit of the, we produce those because of what God did, not because of anything we did or not to get God to approve of us. Does that make sense? So we're, we're, not, we're not crossing over into that church of no works and you don't have to do anything and you can live however you want and it doesn't matter because Jesus paid it all. He did it all on the cross. We're all going to heaven one day. No, nope. now he's like, because I did this, you can do this. Because I took care of this, now you're able to walk in this. But that's not where Naaman's coming from. Naaman's coming from, if I do, if I say, if I go, if I bring, if I pay, then I will get in return. He says, I was telling myself, he will surely come out. And, and listen to how extraordinary this sounds. Listen to how great he makes it sound, right? Have you ever noticed that our plan compared to really what God is asking us to do is usually up here and then you find out or you finally come to the realization of what God is asking, actually asking you to do and it's like, oh, that, that, that's all I needed? That's all you wanted? That, that's all I needed to say? That's all I needed to do? How many of you, when you got saved, when you got born again, were surprised at actually how easy it was? That maybe for a time in your life, you thought you had to do all these different things. Nobody, okay, that's fine, just me. Great. But we do this in our minds. We think up in our minds what we have to do to achieve, to become. 
You know, our church for right now, you know, the season we're in, we've been talking a lot about revival and expecting God to do something great and expecting the, this powerful, awesome, miraculous season, the last days, Jesus getting ready to come back again. What are we doing to set the stage for that? What are we doing to usher that in? What are we doing to, to be the people consecrated, set aside for what God wants to do in these last days? And in our minds, we think of all these great we think of all these awesome things. I mean, if, if God is going to demonstrate his power, it's going it, it, to be something that's going to hit the airwaves. It's something that's good. You know, the, the, we're going to want to put it on TV and share it on the Internet. And, and what, if, what if God is already doing those things and we're missing it? What if it's already happening, but it's not on Instagram? It's not on YouTube. It's not hitting the news. Those days will come, I believe it. But right now, what is God expecting? He's expecting us to use what we have and to follow in the simple steps and acts of obedience. The book of Acts was simple men taking simple steps in acts of obedience. That's all that was. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, Peter and John walking on the way to church one day. They're not even in the church. A lot of times we don't even expect great things to happen until we get in this room. How many of you expected something great to happen when you pulled into the parking lot? In the parking lot. I mean, out there. Like, I don't even need to get inside the building. God can do something right here. You're probably too busy yelling at your kids. Scuffling with your spouse, right? Thinking about everything you got to do today when you get out of church. What buffet you're going to hit? Is Cheddar's going to be too busy? Right? Peter and John are on the way to church, walking in the building. They see a lame man outside and right there on the spot. They didn't walk past him and say, Man, he, he should get inside. Man, there's an anointing in there. If, if he got in here, man, I know that guy. Can, I'll, I'll pray that, that, that so maybe we should bring him inside. Get him in. They right there on the spot, outside the gates. They weren't even in the gates yet. What could happen on the way to church? What could happen on the way to where you think God is doing the miracles and the works and the signs? What could he do along the way? On the way to seeing revival, could we see him do some great things? On the way to, to getting our healing, could we see him do something else in our lives that we didn't even know we needed to believe for? I think we need to change our expectation of what God can do and where he can do it and how he can do it and when he can do it and who he can use to do it. Because we just, we, we, we put God in these boxes. We, we limit God with our expectations sometimes. We talk about we got to have an expectation. Faith is a confident expectation. Hope, a confident expectation. Believing that God will. But sometimes it's our actual expectations that create a limitation for what God can really do. Mary and Martha, both with their expectation, created a limitation for what God could do in healing their brother Lazarus. They said, yep, we know that when you rise again, and Jesus is like, a resurrection is not an event. It's a person. I'm standing in front of you. Let's get this thing taken care of right now. And they were thinking about way off at a time. Jairus had an expectation. If you can make it to my daughter before she dies, I know that you can heal her. Once she's dead, I don't know what can happen. Creating an expectation sometimes can create the limitation that we expect God to work in, to move in. He's got to do it on Sunday morning between the hours of 1030 and 1230. It's got to happen in a sanctuary. It's got to happen inside of a church building. No, I think the revival in these last days are going to be those that get outside of that box and they're going to be not ones coming with all their impressive stuff, all their greatness, all this glamour. But just recognize what God can do in the commonplace. 
what God can do in the ordinary moments, what God can do in just the day-to-day routines that we find ourselves in. Why do we eliminate God from that stuff and then we expect him to make up for all week of being absent from our lives to do something right here, right now, in this moment, in this building, in this place? He's been with you Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, it was your expectation that changed. It was what you thought he could do. It was what you thought he was willing to do. It was where who it was who you thought he could use. I, I've had people tell me that they will talk to somebody at work that needs to be saved, born again, has sickness in their body, and they'll come to me and say, "I'm, I'm doing my best, Pastor, to get them to church." If they could just get here, if they could just get here on Sunday, I know. And I appreciate the heart that you want to see more people come to Anchor Faith Church and get them here. But let me tell you something. The reason why you're here is so I can send you back out there. And if I'm sending you back out there only for you to drag them back in here, but not take the church with you out there, then we have failed. We are doing our job. This is not a a special place. We say it all the time. There's nothing special about this building that God can only operate inside of the confines of these four walls with the stage and a platform and a worship team. He wants the church to go out. He wants the church to be, not to do. This is doing church. But you going out there is being church. To people day in and day out. And ultimately, if, if, if what happens here stays here, this is not Las Vegas. What happens here had better not stay here. It had better go out. Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And they'll come here Because the body of Christ is called out to come together. But we we had better, you know, it's interesting because the disciples and even that initial 120 after Jesus rose from the dead, they were scattered. And then he called them into the upper room to gather. And then he immediately sends them back out to scatter once again. And I'll just go ahead and let you in on a little secret. The book of Acts. The book of Acts and the church as we know it today was born out of opposition. It was born out of oppression. It was born out of government tyranny. It was born out of a fear that if you keep doing what you're doing, we will kill you. We will execute you. We will hang you up for everybody to see. And the church was born out of that. In fact, had it not been for the the oppression, then the church would have grown comfortable, stagnant. They would have not scattered. They would have not gone out. I'm telling you, the days that we're in right now, I believe the church can grow more right now than it has in the last 10 years if we will take head on the opportunity that we're living in right now. I believe we can produce and yield the greatest results the modern church has ever seen. And I don't care what the government has to say about it. I don't care if they try to shut us down, close our doors, tell us we can't meet, tell us we can't sing. You're only helping our cause. You're only causing us to advance. You're only getting us out of our comfort zones so we can go out. And sometimes you need some, some, some pressure to squeeze out what is in you. We just get a little too comfortable sometimes. We just grow a little too stagnant when things are going our way. I said this four years ago when the previous administration took over. Some of y'all may remember me saying it. Thank God that we have a president in place that supports and backs and, and wants the church to do what we're called to do in this country, but that is not a time for us to sit back on our heels and grow comfortable because the day is coming in either four or eight years that we're gonna have to rise back up. And if we didn't do what we were supposed to do in the last administration, we won't be ready for what we need to do in this administration. 
you got to stay ready. You can't let your environment dictate whether you sit back or whether you drive on with the purpose of God. Our mission doesn't change regardless of who's in office. Our purpose doesn't change regardless of what they say, what they try to bring. We're going to stay with the mission of God. Hello. So what can God do? He says he will surely come out, stand, and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the skin. Look at verse 12. Aren't Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than. Look at that, better than. Everyone say better than. Have you ever noticed that when God brings us something, we usually have a plan that is better than what God is bringing us? When God opens up, when God begins to speak, when God begins to direct, when he begins to show us the plan unfolding, we usually have an idea in our head to us that is better than. I'm telling you right now, there is nothing better than the will of God. Nothing better than the purpose of God. You don't have a better way. You can try it out. You can do your alternative measures and methods. You can do whatever you want, but you will come to the point in your life where you will have to reconcile his plan was better. And if I would have just followed him, I would have been better off the whole time. I've literally watched people derail their lives trying to do better than. Better than God's plan. Better than God's way. Better than who God wants to use. But we do this. Because I was telling myself, he's going to come out and he's going to wave his hand and I'm going to get my miracle and it's just going to be this awesome day. And I brought all my greatness. I brought all my achievements. I brought all my accolades. I brought all my stuff all my worth and all my value, all my stuff to impress this man so that way he will be inclined to respond to my need. Look at all the stuff I've got. Look at all the stuff I've done. And then it's just going to be this glorious, magnificent scenario. And then the command is to go dip in the Jordan River, the dirty Jordan River, seven times. Now, honestly, that is much simpler (laughs) than 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, rounding up all these sets of clothing, getting my whole entourage with me, traveling all the way out here with a letter in hand from the king himself. Uh, You're actually, God, your your plan was, was, was a lot easier. See, if we consult God before we figure out or try to figure out a way of how he's going to work through our lives and work in our lives, we might save ourselves a lot of what we thought it was going to cost us. He was willing to pay a much higher price. And then he gets the response that says, man, all you got to do, go dip in that dirty Jordan River seven times, you'll be fine. He sends his messenger to to say it, which only lowers the value even more, right? I mean, to the prophet, this is no big deal. To Naaman, it was a big enough deal that I need to come with this great wealth and this clothing and bring my entourage. He was willing to pay a much higher cost. He was willing to expense a, a, a much greater value upon receiving this miracle and then to come to find out that it's actually not gonna cost him that much. And he's arguing about it? I mean, if you, if you went to go buy a vehicle and you got to the dealership, you were willing to pay 60000 and they said, eh, it's only gonna cost you forty. No, I I wanted the 60,000. I want to pay. No one's arguing over that value. Not unless it's your identity. Not unless it's where you find your worth. Not unless that's what you think it's going to take for God to do something in your life that you have to pay this great. See, here's the thing. If you think that you doing something will help achieve God doing something in your life, then you still think it's up to you, not God. If you are working and conjuring up and doing all these things 
to try to get God to move on your behalf. Ultimately, you think it's up to you and what you do, regardless of what God does. You've just made yourself God. Hello? You've just put yourself on the throne. And he is on the throne. Naaman is absolutely on the throne, on the throne of his greatness, on the throne of his identity, on the throne of his worth and his value. He's on the throne saying, if I bring this and if I pay this and if I go here and if I see this man and then he waves his hand and we do this whole thing, then I'll get my miracle. And unless it happens that way, it's not going to happen. And now he's actually arguing when he comes to find out that it's not going to require all those things. It's not going to cost him all that money. It's not going to be by his works and by all the stuff that he brings to impress anybody, it's because he's on the throne. It's not up to God if I get my miracle. Apparently, it's up to him if he gets his miracle. He said, couldn't I wash in those rivers, the, the better than rivers? And he turned and left in a rage. And how sad would it be if the story ended right there? It's the small things. It's the little thing. It's the mustard seed that gets us to the kingdom. But look at this. I tell you what, if if you are an ignorant person, surround yourself with smart people. Y'all hearing me? Don't look around, look straight ahead. Because Naaman, with all his greatness and with all that he's achieved, it's not very bright. But he's got two servants in in his company. The small, we don't even know their names. A little girl from Israel that says, you need to go see the prophet. It sets him on this journey in the first place. And now he's got another servant. Here in verse 13, his servant approaches him and says to him, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more should you do when he only tells you, wash and be clean? If you make a lot of dumb choices, get somebody in your life that's going to help you make some smart ones. He left in a rage. If you make dumb decisions, get some smart people around you. Smarter than Siri, apparently. He says, if the prophet had told you to do a great thing. Here's the thing. Naaman was so used to doing great tasks that he couldn't do the small one. He gotten so used to the great expense. All these accolades, all these battles, all these wars, all these fights, this great reputation, mighty man of valor, valiant war, all, all, this, all this stuff he accumulated over time. And then he tells himself, if I bring this money and bring these clothes and go here and go see this man and, and, and he waves his hand, all this, all the great, I mean, everything he explained, everything he told himself, everything that he thought he was going to do was great and magnificent. It would have made a great story and share my testimony and do this and do that. But it was the small thing that God was asking And I wonder if we've done this in our lives. What if it was a small thing that would save your marriage? Not this great idea of I've got to do this and say this. It's got to be like this. What if it was the small things that would turn your family around? What if it was a small step of obedience? Turn your business around. It's the small acts. 
Sometimes the smallest tasks demand the greatest faith. That's what he told Gideon. He said, you still have too many men. If you go up there with this many men, it'll be confused that Israel won this battle instead of me. So I'm trimming it down some more. He sends them out by the brook, right? And the ones that, you know, stay propped up and bringing the water to their mouths, those were the ones God picked. The ones that were down lapping it like a dog with their head in the water. You know Gideon was like, okay, I see two different ways this is going. Please let it be the ones that have their face in the water somehow. Please let that be. Because there's a very, there's a very few amount of them doing it the other way. Sure enough, 300 men. But sometimes it's not a measure of what God can do. It's a measure of what we believe he can do. And sometimes our stuff is what's in the way. What could God do through your life? Have you ever stopped and asked that question? Have you ever stopped and just meditated for a moment and just, God, what could you do? You think Billy Graham knew he was going to be Billy Graham? Do you think Kenneth Hagin knew he was going to be Kenneth Hagin? Do you, you, you think these guys knew ahead of time just for, no. They were just doing ordinary stuff like you and I. And you know what, uh, uh, I'm sure there's a story out there. I haven't heard it. I haven't read it. Who's the guy that got Billy Graham saved? Right? We talk about the great men of God, the great women of God. But who are the ones that ministered to them that we don't know about? We don't know their names. We don't know where they came from. But had they not done the small thing, we wouldn't have the great thing. So which is of greater value? All that Billy Graham did or what the one man did in saving Billy Graham? Who in turn? So we got to change our perspective on this because if we are looking ahead to the great things God's going to do and overlook the small ways he gets us there, then we will never make it to the great things. We will turn and leave in a rage when God asks us to do a small thing. And you might have been prepared to do a great thing. You might have been prepared to do the thing that's going to make the headlines. You might have been prepared to do the thing that was uh, 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 going to get you in front of everybody and bring all this influence and, and do all this stuff, raise all this money. And God's saying, if you don't do this, we're never going to get there. two different assignments. The servant approached him and said, if the prophet had told you to do a great thing, would you not have done it? Meaning, you know if he would have asked you to do some great, magnificent thing, you would have fallen in line. You would have obeyed. You would have gone along with it. You're a great man. You're a valiant warrior. This is the reputation you have. You love doing great stuff. But he's helping him see He's not asking you to do something that's even going to cost you what it was, what you were planning to pay. Wouldn't you wash? Wouldn't you wash in that river? Verse 14, Naaman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times. According to the command of the man of God, and his skin was restored and became like the skin of a small boy, and he was clean. He was clean. See, when I'm busy doing great things, my faith is in myself. When I'm obedient in the small things, my faith and trust is in God. Because there's no other way, if I were to do this, that it would produce this. It would have to be God. 
It would have to be God that 300 men go up against 120,000 and win. It would have to be God that a shepherd boy fights a Goliath, fights a giant, and overcomes. It would have to be God. It would have to be God. So I'm putting full trust. It would have to be God that, that, that the nation of Israel walks around walls seven times and they fall down. Sure, we could fight to the death. Sure, we could come with all of our great uh, skill and, and, and as warriors and, and come in here, even with the promise of God. But that's not the question. It's not what God has promised. It's what is he asking you to do? How obedient will you be in the small things? Real quick, go with me to Luke chapter 4. Worship team, if you'd go ahead and come. Luke chapter 4. I had a pastor friend of mine call me several months ago when he was getting into a new side venture of uh, investing and, and becoming, I don't know, I guess a financial planner, specifically for ministers, for pastors. He was recognizing that, you know, not a lot of pastors and ministers set themselves up for retirement effectively. And, and there are things out there for, for ministers to do to help save and create retirement funds, whether you actually retire or step down from ministry or go into a different phase of ministry and just different things that are out there. So he was just calling me and he made this statement to me. He said, the, the biggest struggle that I have is when, when it comes to investing, and this is with investing in general, is helping people understand that starting where you're at, even with a small amount, can grow so much over time. It's so difficult for me to translate that just doing $100 a month right now, what that can become over 30 years, over 20 years, if you would just start with what you can do. And he says the struggle is they have this idea of a million-dollar retirement account that's going to be worth so much in 30 years but I can't get them to take the smallest step. He said, I'll have them tell me, well, you know, I'm expecting this, uh, you know, I'm expecting to get 10,000 in my tax return or 5,000 from this or that. And, and, and so I'll do it then. And he's like, don't wait. Time is what's killing you. This is just, if you won't do the hundred dollars, we have this idea that we'll take this big, great step. But then the small ones along the way, we're holding off on. In Luke chapter 4, verse 16, Jesus, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, Jesus is reading out of the book of Isaiah. He's literally as if I would get up here and I would open the Bible to Isaiah 61 and I would read that passage to you. He's reading that passage as was customary, as usual. It says this was common practice that a teacher of the law would come in to the synagogue, you know, during their church service and would open the scrolls and read the scrolls. And he goes to Isaiah 61. Obviously not labeled Isaiah 61, but he turns to that portion of the law and he reads it to the people. And in verse 20, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. So he rolls it up, closes the Bible, gives it to the attendant and sits back in his seat. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him because he didn't just read it like everyone else read it. Everyone in the room recognized there's something different about this guy. He read that different. There's authority behind it. There's power behind it. There's meaning behind it. 
And in verse 21, he began by saying to them, today as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. In essence, what he's saying is, the one that I just read about, that's me. Right here. That day of proclaiming liberty to the captives, the day of preaching good news to the poor, the one uh, preaching recovery of sight to the blind. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, literally me, and He's anointed me to do all that. He's, it's here. And you think that'd be excitement and celebration. Yes, we've arrived. The thing we've read about, the thing that we've been hearing about, the thing that, that we've heard everybody else talk about, but there was a reason why it was different coming out of your mouth. There was a reason why it was different coming from you. It's because you are the one. You're the one who the Lord has anointed. The Spirit of the Lord is upon you. You're going to do these things. And in verse 22, they were all speaking well of him. And we're amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Man, that's exciting. That, that's, that, this is the Messiah. But then look at the next phrase. Yet they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Game changer. Game changer. Man, that's the one. He's here. Guys, that's him right there. The one with the authority, the one with the power, the one, the spirit of the Lord is upon him. Man, he's going to bring sight to the blind. And he, who? Yeah, yeah, Jesus. Joseph's son? From Nazareth? Oh. Wait a minute. Joseph's son's going to bring sight to the blind? No, can't be, can't be. Wait, 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 wait. He said the spirit of the Lord is, the, I mean, it sounded different. You, you heard that, right? It sounded different. But not, not Joseph's son. Verse 23, he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Doctor, heal yourself. What we've heard that took place in Capernaum, do here in your hometown also, And he also said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. The second they said, isn't this Joseph's son? They wrote themselves off from the great things. They could not reconcile that God would do mighty things. with a normal person. They couldn't reconcile that God would do this great thing that they've pictured and they've heard. We've read these verses a thousand times. We've heard these verses a thousand times. We've heard this before. And then you read it and it sounded different. But from you, through the small thing, from Bethlehem, born in the, the small town. I mean, we sing about it today. Oh, ye little town. Of Bethlehem. Bethlehem still hasn't recovered from that reputation. It gave birth to the Savior of the world, and there's still the little town of Bethlehem. We don't say, oh, great town, oh, wonderful town, oh, awesome town of Bethlehem. We say little town. Of the song is there. We haven't changed the words yet. The one from Nazareth. They couldn't reconcile. God would do mighty things through a common man. Look what else he goes on to say. Verse 25, but I say to you, there, was, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's day when the sky was shut up for three years and six months while a great famine came over all the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them except a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. Watch this in verse 27. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had leprosy, and yet not one of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. Just like Naaman was enraged when he heard 
that a great thing would come through a small act. A great thing would would be produced from a small. That the kingdom of God would come through a tiny, the tiniest of all mustard seed. Does that enrage you today? Or does that excite you to what God can do? Don't be like these. That when God responded with a small act, a small command, a small step of obedience, that we become enraged. How can God do a great thing through the small things? It says they were enraged. They got up, drove him out of the town, brought him to the edge of a hill intending to hurl him over the cliff, and he passed right through them. Would you stand with me? How can a great God use common men and women? Come on, this is a a message that should excite you today. How can a great God do great things through small steps by common people? That's what he's doing. He hasn't changed his game plan yet. He did it all throughout this book and he's still doing it today. He still wants to perform great things through small steps with common people. If you would just throw your hands in the air and thank him, Father. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast today. We trust you received a word from God. If you enjoyed this teaching, be sure to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes. By subscribing, you'll be sure to receive a new message every week as soon as they are made available. And if you'd like to learn more about Anchor Faith Church, you can stop by our website at anchorfaithbaldosta.com. There you'll find our locations and service times, ministries that are available for you and your family. You can even give financially in support of the ministry. Thank you again for listening, and we look forward to seeing you next time right here on the Anchor Faith Church podcast.